and this is the art of less doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Hey, it's Ari Mizell. Welcome to the Less Doing, More Living podcast. Nine years ago, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, a little-known, extremely painful, and seemingly incurable disease, which forced me to go down a long road of radical transformation so that I could reduce stress and win back a normal life for me and my family. While extremely painful, Crohn's was the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to innovate and create the less doing, more living system, which I used to govern my life. Then I was given the gift of starting to teach this system to other people. And over time, I was able to help more and more people through a video course, this podcast, and the Less Doing, More Living book. Now I have the privilege of working with some of the world's top business minds, including Dean Jackson, Joe Polish, Dave Asprey, and Jordan Harbinger, who have all decided to join me for the first annual Less Doing Live Summit that I'm holding in New York City from May 1st through 3rd. To get more information on the Less Doing Live Summit, you can go to the URL lessdoinglive.com. Or you can also find links to the event on our main site, lessdoing.com. Now, enjoy today's podcast. And if you listen to the end of the show, I am going to give you more information on this event, as well as a way you can earn a free copy of my book, Less Doing, More Living. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast, episode 143 with Garth of Cairncrest Farms. And this is a really great interview with uh, about two brothers and... Uh, one of their wives, who decided to take the challenge of living off the land. They own a farm in upstate New York, and they decided for a year they were only going to eat what they could grow or barter for. The other thing is that I must apologize for the last couple episodes where the sound on my end was really bad, because as I have this really nice mic that I'm talking into right now, but the computer was selected to use the internal mic of the Mac. So I'm over here talking to the good mic, and which made it even worse that I wasn't actually talking directly into the internal mic of the Mac. So I apologize, and I hope that this sound quality is much better and much more of what you are used to. This is the second episode in a long time that I decided to do a solo co-host, or I guess hosting part. No co-host this time. Felix is still traveling, and my usual co-hosts are busy. So here we go. First inter- or first article I want to tell you about is on Greatest, and it's about how long does it actually take to get out of shape. And I thought this was really cool that uh, they, they looked at this, because it's a question you always have. As somebody, as somebody personally who never recommends that people work out every day, or even more than once a week sometimes, it's a good question to ask. And one of the things that this showed was that cardio conditioning falls faster than strength, which may not be surprising to people, but this is this is looking at like no activity at all. So they were saying that uh, one of the things that they found was that after 12 days of inactivity, VO2 max, which is a pretty good measure of your basically your capacity to transport and use oxygen, so your cardio capacity in some ways, dropped by 7% and enzymes in the blood associated with endurance performance decreased by 50%. So that's that's pretty significant, but that's 12 days of doing absolutely nothing. And you know, you can do a Tabata protocol in 4 minutes and still maintain a lot of that fitness actually so that was uh, that was one thing that it, that it pointed out but the other thing was that it actually is it's it's easy to regain it 
So that's that's also good. So it doesn't take much to regain it. But uh, one of the things that they showed for strength was that basically uh, if you quit working out for 14, four months, I think it was, then you would lose 50% of your original strength. So that's actually not so bad. That's a pretty big break. So, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, take that back. Three-week break resulted in 50% loss. But even so, that's significantly better than the 12 days that it takes to lose 50% of your cardio capacity. So just something to be aware of. And this is not so much how you plan your training, but if you're ever like sick or you have an injury and you're like, oh my God, I'm losing a week of training, I'm gonna lose all my fitness, doesn't quite work that way. So the next one, this is a kind of a random one. I, I heard a concept of the fertile void and I really like this idea because one of the things that I always talk about with less doing is that you're freeing up your time and your mind so that you can focus on the things you want to do. And a lot of times people don't know what that is until they free up that mind space. And that mind space is the fertile void. So it's basically what happens if you can explore that space and discover the things that you're supposed to be working on, discover the new ideas and then hopefully take action on them. It's just a nice article on Vitality Magazine about how to explore the fertile void. So this is a really random one, but I just like this as far as the use of technology. You may have seen the saw stop. Some of you may have seen that, or, or blade stop. I'm not sure what it's called, but basically it was a technology for circular or for table saws that could detect the presence of your finger and stop the blade before it could cut you. And they show these really cool demonstrations where they put a hot dog on top of a, a two by four and they run it through the saw and as soon as it touches the hot dog, it barely nicks the skin of the hot dog and the blade is stopped. The problem with it is that it ruins the blade. It's a, it's a, a breaking system that totally destroys the blade and you have to have it replaced and it's very expensive. But uh, Reax is the new saw from Bosch and it actually pulls the blade out of the way instantly before the finger even gets there and it does not ruin the blade or destroy it. So obviously you want to be careful when you're using a table saw, but if you are not, then you don't want to lose a finger because of it. And I have seen people on the job site when I'm working in construction who have actually lost fingers because of this kind of stuff. I, I didn't see it happen, but I've seen the results of it. So uh, it's a really cool technology and I just wanted to share that. So there's an article over at Mark and Angel Hack Life, which is a really cool blog. It's very thoughtful, very deep stuff on productivity. And what it's it says is eight things emotionally stable people don't do. And I felt like this was like a checklist for my life, uh, not as far as adhering to it, but problems that I've had in terms of like processing emotions. But one of the things is they don't take other people's behavior personally. So that was a that was a pretty good one. And then it also said that they don't tie their present emotions to past negativity. When we're in the here and now, it's much easier to cope with emotions and see them as just that emotions. And this goes towards mindfulness, which is something that I talk about before uh, many times, where your your thoughts are happening, they just, they're gonna happen. And you have to recognize that, that you can either participate or you can just sort of let them happen and go with the flow a little bit. So that's that was a really, really nice message here. And there's eight things that I recommend you, you read this article. Kickstarter campaign. I love Kickstarter campaigns. This one's called Mastering Krav Maga Self-Defense Online with David Kahn. So this is fascinating to me because I am a practitioner of Krav or I was a practitioner of Krav Maga. I haven't been very active in it in a long time, but I was a yellow belt and I love it. And I think it's the most efficient, in some ways easiest to learn self-defense system that exists. It's used by the Israeli Defense Forces and it's very effective, very aggressive, and basically with the point of disabling your uh, your enemies or aggressors as quickly as possible. Now, the idea of teaching this online is interesting to me because 
one of the things that that was so great for me about Krabaga was it's very physical and very i mean you can get hurt not badly hurt but you walk out of a class and you definitely are going to have some sore muscles or some black and blues even and because it's very hands-on it's very realistic and in that way it's great because it uh, it trains you to react appropriately in those moments however the techniques themselves are actually very easy to teach and that's kind of the point they're meant to be as automatic and simple as possible so seeing this as a Kickstarter campaign, I, I think it's great. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing to get into the mainstream because it, the nice thing about Krav Maga is it doesn't matter if you're big and strong. This works for people who are smaller, weaker, slower, and it even has even worse for children in a lot of ways. So if you're interested, but you don't have a class near you that you can try it or you just never found out about it before, check it out on Kickstarter. So this next one is badass and i wish felix was on here because he would go on and on about this but it's called launcher and it's an iphone app so launchers are a, a sort of a, a category of programs and most of the time they're on your laptop or your your, your desktop and they allow you to uh, basically have shortcuts to things whether it's a shortcut to a certain web page or to a program or to a message that you want to write there that's really a big time saver and this is a launcher for the iphone that actually allows you to put shortcuts on your notification screen. So without even unlocking your phone, you can push one button to call your spouse or send a tweet or get directions to go home from wherever you are or go to a specific song on your music, for example. So this is a huge time saver and really kind of endless possibilities. So it's, it's amazing. Now, the next thing is an article from Fatherly. And it's Fatherly is a really great blog, by the way. If you haven't seen it and you are a dad, I recommend checking it out. But this article is Science Has Figured Out the Best Age to Start Giving Your Kids Chores. Okay, so uh, my kids, I have two two year olds and a three year old, and they actually really love doing certain things. I, I, we couldn't be like, go do this chore and walk back, you know, 20 minutes later and it's done. It's more that they like to help. Like I, I built a bike yesterday with Ben, and he did a lot of the screwing of the putting screws in and using the screwdriver and he really loves it our, our one of my two-year-olds loves taking baby wipes and cleaning up messes and wiping the floor and stuff so uh basically what they found in this study was that uh the one children who began chores at ages three and four were more likely to have good relationships achieve academic success and be self-sufficient than those who started as teens or had none at all so there you go start those chores early and you know, it could be things like helping clean the house, taking out the trash, washing windows, um, or pretty much anything else that doesn't make them hurt themselves or or they can't get into too much danger. But there are a lot of chores. And then you can turn it into a game, how quickly they can do it, how often, all sorts of stuff. So it's a really good thing. And it may make your life easier. Now, uh, there's a a an article in uh, Time magazine, and it's... There could be, there could soon be a pill to make us more compassionate. So this is based on a study that was done at uh, California Berkeley and the, or sorry, the University UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco, and it was shown that they could manipulate a brain chemical that could make people more compassionate and act in pro-social ways to equalize differences. So th this is kind of a fascinating idea, and if you look at at what this is doing basically at some point you have to say like are you manipulating 
it in such a way that you're actually changing your fundamental personality. So I think that most people or a lot of people would like to be more compassionate. I am certainly someone who would like to be more compassionate. It's an area of my life that I am. I think I, I lack in honestly. And basically it was it was a dopamine drug that manipulated certain levels of neurotransmitters and made people act in a more compassionate way. And uh, I, again, I like the idea, but is this really, a, is this fixing the symptom or is it fixing the underlying problem? I don't know. So interesting idea. And that's it for today. That's all the links we have. Thank you so much for listening in. And I hope that you like this solo co-host thing. It's not my plan going forward, but obviously it's going to happen every now and then. And Again, sorry about the sound in the last couple episodes, but hopefully that won't happen again. So thanks for listening. Enjoy the interview with Garth of Cairncrest Farms. And now for feature interview. So now I'm speaking with Garth Brown, who is a farmer at Cairncrest Farms. So uh, Garth, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I was really excited when I saw your story, and I, I want you to tell us a little about it, how you and your brother basically ha- have gone on this food journey where you're only eating the things that you produce, right? Yeah, that's basically it. Um, we've got a few things we're allowed to uh, barter within limitations. Like, we can barter with another farmer who has produced something, but, I mean, for all practical purposes, we're, um, yeah, eating only what we've grown on our own farm. Uh, and we're doing it for a calendar year. So we started in on uh, January 1st and we're gonna keep going all the way through 2015. So you started in the dead of winter. That was, that's a, that's, that's a, uh, no, no small task. Yeah, especially we're, we're in upstate New York. So uh, we get a serious winter here, but, um, and, and obviously there's a lot of planning that goes into something like this. You know, you don't just decide in December, we're gonna do right. it. Well, you know, we really started um, almost, uh, you, you know, we're, um, you know, in spring of 2014, really, with planting a lot of food. And then we, um, you know, had to build a root cellar to store food in. And uh, it was something we were working towards for a long time. Um, and we decided to start then because, you know, it, it's a convenient time to start just from a psychological perspective. Everybody makes resolutions and um that's a hell of a resolution I mean, I mean, yeah i give you guys a lot of credit i, I mean how, how long have you been a farmer uh we bought the farm five years ago and we've slowly been we uh my brother and i have both been uh, each building our own house so um that took the first three and a half years for me um so we've been shifting more and more into the full-time farming thing um but yeah, five years ago we what, came to the what farm. What were you doing before? Well, my brother was a nurse, and me and my wife had uh, been out on Long Island. I was working for a coffee roaster out there, actually, and also working for an oyster farmer. And uh, we lived in an artist residence. Uh, my wife is a painter, and I write. So which coffee roaster? I'm just curious. Not Hampton's Coffee, by any chance? <laughs> no, no. The, I worked for. Uh, guy named Aldo. It's on the North Fork and he would actually sell his biscotti and scones down to Hampton's Coffee. Okay. Well, cuz I cuz I so it, I I spent my the beginning of my career in Binghamton, New York. So I'm I'm very familiar with where you are. 
Um, yeah. And uh, I, for the last year and a half, my family and I have lived in Bridgehampton. Now we've moved back to the city. So I, I, I'm familiar with the, with what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, so so five years ago, wh- what made you decide to make the switch to, to becoming a full-time farmer? Well, um, I'd sort of always, or since midway through college, I'd been pretty clear I didn't want to go uh, pursue an office job. Um, I, uh, that's the coffee roasting was something I was interested in maybe doing. Uh, but then my brother proposed that uh we get a farm together and make cheese and that was the idea for a while my wife and i actually went to france and apprenticed with cheese makers there uh after leaving long island and for a number of reasons business reasons and personal reasons we've shifted away from that model but we had uh, already bought this farm and i guess the appeal to coffee roasting for me was it's both intellectual, you've got to know a lot of stuff, but it's all also very practical. You're uh, putting all of this knowledge to work to produce a really exceptional product. And farming has that same appeal, but even more so because trying to farm well is an incredibly, incredibly engaging and complicated thing. Just working with natural systems that you have no control over and then honestly a a business that if you follow a conventional model is pretty tough to make a living at so trying to figure out new ways to farm and it's a really 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 engaging challenge that you can take (laughs) you know i can foresee being uh, engaging for my entire life so that's the short answer yeah, no, sure. And, and I mean, it's it's incredibly. And I, I actually was involved with uh, a guy named Ben Flanner who created the Brooklyn Grange Farm, which is the one of the first major rooftop farms here in New York City. And just, I mean, the, the little exposure I've had to what modern farming looks like, I mean, it's I, I really salute you for what you're doing. Um, so now you have some pretty great methods here. I mean, you know, there's a lot of farms that don't produce high quality foods and they don't necessarily have the best you know, in terms of animal care and all sorts of things. But I mean, you're, it's actually the best part of your website, in my opinion, is all of the different methods in terms of grass and the quality of the pasture and stress. And I mean, how did you learn that part? Oh, well, first of all, thanks for saying that, because we've debated a lot with uh, my brother and his wife and me and my wife, you know, we have, we have meetings and uh, we have a a shared written goal for the farm. And a lot of that has to do with those things. But we've, debated how much we want, you know, are people going to be interested in all of this? And so I really appreciate hearing that you like that part of the website as much as you do. Um, But as far as learning about it goes, a lot of it is, it's just a combination. Like I said, we went to France and apprenticed and uh, just see how other farmers you respect treat their animals and approach the land and then read a whole lot. I mean, there's it's a really really interesting time to be farming because all of the there's just more information than i think there ever was about things like animal welfare but also soil health and viewing a farm as an ecosystem and uh sort of a a a truly holistic approach not not in any sort of 
new agey way, but really trying to view the farm as a, a whole system that can benefit the community and benefit the people who live on it and run it and be a healthy place for the animals to live. Just all of these considerations and uh, the challenge is taking all of these things and figuring out how to make them a reality. And we're by no means where we want to be with everything, but it's, I think, very good to have these goals out in front of you and to publicly state them and to be accountable to your, uh, you know, to our customers. Like, these are the things we believe in and we want them to come here and be able to see that we're uh, living up to them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, no, I, I really, really did appreciate seeing that. And one of the things that I, I saw, you know, when you're talking about stress, and I, fa I found this really interesting because I, and I don't want to like, I don't want to upset anybody in terms of like this aspect of, of the, the cattle. But in terms of the killing, like you're not, it's an FDA thing, right, that you can't do it at the facility where they're, where they're pastured or where they're raised, right? We would need to have, if we, if we wanted to, uh, retail meat, particularly, there are some gray areas, but, uh, if we, the short answer is if we wanted to retail cuts of meat, which is our business model, it needs to go to a, uh, an inspected slaughterhouse. So theoretically, I know there's a place down in Georgia that is a very, very large grass-fed cattle farm, and I think uh, they had a partnership with Whole Foods where they've actually put in the, a slaughtering facility on their farm, which is sort of the gold standard. But for a small farm, there that's a, a really difficult thing from a capital perspective and a time perspective. Well, and the reason I ask is because I've heard other interviews with other farmers and I've read about this before. That, that's kind of like a sore spot, right? Because you do all this stuff to avoid stressing out the animals and stuff. And then at the point where you really want to avoid the stress, then they're going to an unfamiliar place and an unfamiliar setting. And then that's where they're being actually killed. Right. So that, I mean, yeah, uh, that's, week, that's exactly chain, right. Right. Yeah, we're very lucky here. Some farmers have to truck, some farmers our size have to truck their animals for hours and hours, which is impractical and also a big stress on the animals. We've got, uh, this is a historically agricultural area and still has working dairy farms. So we've got quite a lot of small slaughterhouses around. And there's a good one that's only 20, 25 minutes from us that we really like and think they do a good job, but it still is definitely um, the weak link, as you said. When you have an animal that's never left our farm, you know, and born here, raised here its entire life with a turd, and we have some thoughts about how to improve that as far as sending larger groups of our animals so they're at least, you know, entirely with animals that are familiar with them would help. And like I said, the slaughterhouse we send them to does everything in their power to, uh, you know, treat the animals as well as they can. But there's no way to have it be as low stress as it would be um, if everything could take place on the farm. Well, and then just, I mean, besides animal welfare and just, you know, caring about animals, can you just tell people listening why you do want to avoid stress in terms of the actual meat? Yeah, well, stress particularly exertion, but stress can absolutely uh, affect the quality of the meat. The most extreme case uh, from my reading, and I've tried and tried to get a really authoritative scientific uh, backing for this, but um, it seems plausible to me is that if 
an animal has exerted itself such that its muscles are glycogen depleted, when you age the meat, it actually will not go undergo the uh, proper pH shift, um, which is critical to developing uh, a good flavor. Um, beyond that, there's lots of uh, anecdotes that just the stress hormones can impart off flavors, which I also find plausible. Um, so that, that's definitely a concern because particularly with cows, each cow is such an investment of our time and, uh, you know, very significant, uh, economically that if one, if one is ruined or not saleable, that's a huge, huge blow. But the primary thing for the stress for us is the animal welfare, I would say. Sure. Okay. And then as far as like, uh, quality control or taste control like do you do uh i don't know is there like a, a sampling you do of meat after it's done to make sure that that lot is good or like how does that work yes we um taste uh, you know we try to do a, a couple cuts from each cow just to make sure make sure the steaks are you know tender enough and um make sure the biggest thing is making sure there's no off flavors in the meat and because we retail it and we're trying to build a direct relationship with our customers uh, in which they can count on us having a, you know, you know, we ask for a premium price, so we want to be consistently giving them a premium product. So absolutely, uh, quality control is critical. Okay, cool. So now I want to talk a little bit more about your little food or not learn it, your, your food journey here. But <laughs> since, since you, I mean, since you said that you could barter and stuff, but I, I'm still curious, you know, what, there's got to be some things that you obviously can't grow and you can't barter for. So like, what are some things that you've had to give up in this food journey? I've said a, a million times on our blog that coffee and chocolate are the two hardest ones because <laughs> you can't barter I'm for coffee. No, well, no, because we we are really only allowed, like, we bartered for some oats that one of our friends grew, but, you know, coffee that was grown in uh, Africa or South America, yeah. you know, I guess if we knew someone in South America we could barter with, then I would do it, but we're not just allowed to barter for anything by our own arbitrary rules, so, um, yeah, coffee and, and chocolate, um, I, I really absolutely love you know super dark 85 percent chocolate um beyond that it really has been just a lack of variety more than anything i, I really love the food i get to eat day to day but it honestly gets monotonous just being so limited in what you have to eat for breakfast lunch and dinner Is it a lot of meat <laughs> a lot of meat and um pretty much only beef so far we're going to have uh, some pork pretty soon but it's been beef and a bit of chicken so you, are you, yeah are you getting eggs and butter and stuff or no butter we, we don't have dairy cows uh i'm theoretically i guess we could start milking a cow in the spring but none of our cows are trained to be milked so that would be a huge headache we are getting eggs which is wonderful because our hens weren't laying for the first well really for the first five weeks or so we were getting hardly any eggs so that's been a really really good addition to our diet well so so like what's like what was breakfast today 
uh, roasted sweet meat squash, which is a Hubbard family squash. Delicious. I think the only reason they're not sold in stores is they each squash gets 15 to 20 pounds, so they're bigger than most people want to buy. I had that with kale that I'd uh, frozen last fall and then um, some scrambled eggs. Okay, well, that sounds pretty good to me. Um, and, yeah, it does, but then... <laughs> that's like every morning. Like I said, every, every meal in itself is delicious. It's just more the monotony of, you know, I, as far as carbs go, I have basically squash, rutabagas, turnips. We just ran out of potatoes because our potato crop was kind of a failure. Um, beets and onions and some Jerusalem artichokes, but that's really... It, as far as carbs go, protein and fat has basically been beef, you know, tallow for cooking fat, and then eggs. And then for veggies, I've had got frozen green beans and frozen kale and some sauerkraut and some kimchi, but uh, it's a pretty limited spectrum. Okay, so, I mean, so you're definitely fermenting then, obviously. Yeah, yeah, we fermented... Um, big batch of sauerkraut, a uh, pretty good sized batch of kimchi, and uh, I made a lot of cider, and that's been the biggest disappointment, is the hard cider I made really it has is so bland, it's almost not worth drinking. <laughs> wow, so really living uh, living and learning. Um, and what about, uh, like, what was, what was dinner last night? Um, dinner, let's see... You know, around roast, uh, roasted rutabagas and green beans. That's pretty, pretty typical. Have you noticed any changes in your health or your body? You know, your your your. Yeah, I haven't lost any weight, um, which kind of surprised me. I definitely have a bit less energy. I think the biggest. Uh, I haven't. You know, I. I didn't track my diet in any serious way before, and I. Uh, still don't you know weigh and measure but my observation is that i'm eating significantly less fat and um making up for it with carbs um and i think my total calorie caloric intake has decreased as well so um i'm outside a lot and both my brother and i have noticed that our extremities get cold a lot easier than they did before um i think i want to sleep a little bit more and uh, have I, st I still have plenty of energy to do everything I need to, but I don't feel quite as energetic as I think I did prior to doing this. Um, those are the big things I've noticed. Uh, I haven't noticed any radical improvements. I think I, I was eating pretty clean. Like I, I had a pretty clear idea of what foods didn't agree with me beforehand. I think if I was going from a standard American diet to this, it would be a pretty profound shift. But I was already, you know, paleo for the most part. So most of the changes, unfortunately, have been uh, slightly negative, but not anything too significant. Okay. I mean, that's, that's interesting to hear. I mean, and, and that also, uh, it might, I assume, could be some function of the winter as well. I mean, this is, a, this is not a particularly kind winter. So... <laughs> Probably no, no, a lot it's of adjustments not. to make for your body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what 
what are sort of like the the future? I know you said you want to do retail, or you, or you do want to do retail, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yes. So, is that what else are sort of the future plans with this? I mean, what you want to have retail meet, and what else? That's the biggest thing. We've mostly been doing beef to this point, but we're very interested in actually developing pork because we think that's a there's less of it uh, of very very high quality pork available. I mean, there's still not a huge amount of grass fed beef, but um, there are very few people doing uh, pigs raised on a very low or no grain diet, which is uh, our goal. And uh, we want to ex- expand to uh, our, our goal is to have a retail website where people can buy ahead of time. We put together the order and then drop it off at various uh, drop points. You know, probably in the New York area. Cool. Um, uh-huh. And and that's for 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 uh, pork. You're talking about it, that would be pasture or heritage yes. raised is what it's called, right? Well, we'd have. We're not going to be restricting our pigs to any one breed. We are starting with heritage pigs, but we'll uh, we're we're doing a variety of. Breeds. Right now we have Tamworths and then some that are across between, um, oh, I don't know, Herefords and uh, Redwattle and who knows what else. And uh, after our experience with cows, we're not going to, we think that the merits of doing, like sticking to one individual pure breed uh, aren't worth the uh, limitations and difficulties working with the breed organization. So we're going to try uh, large blacks and uh, Gloucester Old Spots and some other breeds this spring and just start selecting the individuals that do best uh, in our program and sort of develop our own little, you know, uh, we won't name it, but our our own pigs, which will be a composite of a number of heritage breeds. Um, But the, the biggest thing is really the diet. Because even most pasture-raised pigs have a very significant grain component, and in in their diet, we want to raise pigs with um, whey, which is a byproduct of the dairy industry, and pasture as their the vast majority of their uh, food intake. Cool. Um, I mean, I. I can't wait to, to, to hopefully try some of your meat. When do you think people would be able to actually get it and order it? Well, we sell, um, we're from a town outside of Philadelphia, all of us, and we they have a market there. And so we uh, sell there. We'll start selling there again. Um, I think the first market is in early April. I don't want to say a date because I don't have the paper in front of me but on, on our website we post when we're going to be going to a market and what products we'll have available so we haven't made the shift over to retailing off the website yet that's probably a, a year or two off for the time being it's just we go to a market and retail from it and we've been able to sell everything we produce there so far it's a very very vibrant market and, um, in the in the future we hope to have 
as I said, drop-off points um, in the greater New York area and uh, also in the greater Philadelphia area. Um, but that's all location to be determined. And uh, yeah, our website's the best place to keep up with where we're going to be and how to get our uh, the meat we produce. Great. Well, that, thank you so much for you know taking the time to tell me all about this. And I mean, I, it, it's it's really eye-opening. Sort of what goes into not only producing really high quality food, but also living off of high quality food. So um, where just give people, we'll have this all in the show notes, of course, but please give people the, the URL so they can find out more about you guys. Sure. Um, the website is www.karencrestfarm.com. That's C-A-I-R-N-C-R-E-S-T farm.com. And we're also on Facebook, so you can find us pretty easily. Awesome. Well, uh, Garth, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And uh... Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, it was great talking to you. Hey, it's Ari again. Thanks for listening to today's show. As I promised at the beginning of the show, I am going to tell you more about the Less Doing Live event in New York City from May 1st through 3rd. Then I will tell you how you can earn a free copy of the Less Doing More Living book. Less Doing Live is an event I am putting on with Business Research Group in New York City. We have designed this event to give you and a small group of Less Doing Fanatics a personal, quality experience. We are limiting this event to 150 participants in Manhattan to make sure that I get a chance to meet and hang out with every one of you. Now here's why this event is different. You see, most business conferences are just a series of speeches on a stage where smart speakers get up and give you tons of great information. In fact, it's usually so much that you don't know what to do with it all. But at Less Doing, our community is all about taking action. So I have designed this event to make you take action. But at Less Doing, our community is all about taking action. So I have designed this event to make sure you do take action. Because the only way to make big changes in your life is to invest in yourself. And that's not only an investment of your money, because you can always earn more of that, but rather an investment of your time, which is something so precious because you can never get it back. So at this event, we're not just going to talk. On the first morning, Dave Asprey and I are going to share with you the latest cutting-edge tips on how to hack your productivity and biohack your body. But then that afternoon, it's going to get really exciting when we break down into small groups and get you into workshops to solve your biggest problems in productivity. What are the workshops going to be? They'll be designed to help you tackle the fundamental problems that stop 99% of the world from realizing their full potential. Getting your email down to inbox zero and mastering your communications with the world or a scheduling class where you can learn how to automate your schedule to the point where you will have a calendar working for you or an outsourcing class where you can learn how to get rid of 95% of the things that you shouldn't be doing on a daily basis. We're also going to have a biohacking class that's going to include nutrition and help you master your body and your life. Which one of these classes should you attend? Well, that's where my last doing certified coaches come in. Before we even let you get to the event, you have to speak to one of our coaches so that we can talk to you and see if the event is right for you. That way we can make sure that we truly help you. So to get to the event, you just need to enter your email and then register to speak to one of our Less Doing Certified Coaches in a free 45-minute coaching call where you will learn the one area of your life that you need the most help with and will get the most impact out of. Now, as a special gift to you for joining this free coaching call, I want to recognize your commitment to your productivity by giving you a free copy of the book, Less Doing, More Living. 
Thanks for listening.